0: Big, small, hot, cold, happy, sad. Sad, right? Now, believe me, I know words are slippery things, but one of the ways we help to shape our understanding of words is to imagine what the opposite would be. And I found that sad came very naturally to mind as the other side of the happy. And then I wondered, is that true in my experience? Is sadness on the opposite end of a particular spectrum that begins with happiness? Now, I realize, as I said, that words are slippery things, and they are slippery in part because they are trying to describe sensations and feelings and experiences that are contextual, relative, changing and complex. And part of the complexity is that we don't experience such emotions one at a time. They are all mixed up together. And yet, it feels like the idea of happiness is worth unpacking, if only because it is often stated as a goal for ourselves, the pursuit of happiness, and is a piece of the good wishes that we have for those we love the most. I just want you to be happy. When we talk about the pursuit of happiness, it sounds like happiness is something which, as a result of a successful pursuit, we can grasp, which we can hold, which we can own. Charles Wyman brought my attention to the fascinating fact that the writers of the Declaration of Independence borrowed, and in some cases lifted whole passages from philosopher John Locke's Second Treatise on Government. Interestingly, John Locke listed the unalienable rights as life, liberty, and property. Now, you have to wonder what led to the change from property to the pursuit of happiness. Did they just want something that sounded a little loftier? Did they mean to leave out property? That, judging from their general concerns, is unlikely. Or did Jefferson and company consider property as a necessary and indeed primary prerequisite for one to be able to pursue happiness? Now we have talked about the thorny issues that revolve around defining the pursuit of happiness as a right. It can easily devolve into a right to be happy. It is similarly troubling to draw such a close association between happiness and property. This can easily devolve into measuring happiness by what one owns, or devolve yet further into considering happiness itself as something one can own. And I don't mean to be naive here, Certainly property brought with it and to a certain extent still implies a certain amount of self-determination and the ability to enjoy the fruits of one's own labors, to borrow a cliché. It provides a context for the pleasure and contentment that often show up in the dictionary definitions of happiness. But is that what we mean when we use the word happy? And do we then imagine that pleasure and contentment are experiences that continue over time that we can hold onto? And what do they have to do with the supposed opposite of happiness? That being sadness. I just want you to be happy means presumably I don't want you to be sad. Ever? Is that realistic? Healthy? Is that really what we wish? Granted, sadness can be, well, hard, painful. But is it something we would choose to erase from our lives entirely? Is it incongruous with the pursuit of happiness? I just found out this week that sadness... Sadness was included in the earliest version of what became known as the seven deadly sins. Sadness. A sin? According to some interpretations, this really meant sadness over another's good fortune. (laughs) In other words, envy, which makes more sense as a character defect that one may want to work on. Others said that the sadness referred to was related more closely to sloth, sorrow that led to despondency, irresponsibility, and apathy towards one's duties. Sadness turned inward that it infected one's ability and motivation to act. In those cases, it seems like it wasn't so much sadness itself that was considered a problem, but either its focus, sadness over someone else's good fortune, or its unfortunate ramifications in which one might indulge, leading to despondency depriving one of hope and motivation. What about sorrow itself? What about sadness as we commonly understand it? Is it something to be avoided if we wish to be happy? The C.S. Lewis piece from the readings is talking about joy, which he distinguishes from pleasure and happiness. But in terms of commonly held conceptions, just as the opposite of happy is sad, the opposite of joy is sorrow, right? Right? Lewis would beg to differ. Joy, in my sense, he writes, has indeed one characteristic and one only in common with happiness and pleasure, the fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. Apart from that, and considered only in its quality, it might almost equally well be called a particular kind of unhappiness or grief. But then it is a kind we want. So from Lewis's perspective, sorrow is not incompatible with joy. In fact, joy can include a particular kind of unhappiness or grief, a kind that we actually want. Lewis was not the first to see joy and sorrow as bound together. Poet William Blake wrote, Joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine. Under every grief and pine, runs a joy with silken twine. So why is this important? Because if we even carry a vague notion that achieving happiness has to do with avoiding sorrow, we can find ourselves, I think, in dangerous territory indeed. Because the surest way to not feel sadness is to teach myself not to feel However you define happiness or sadness or sorrow or joy, what Jonathan Safran Foer shares in his novel seems to me to be true. You cannot protect yourself from sadness without protecting yourself from happiness. You cannot protect yourself from one and expect to experience the other. One of the things that happens for recovering addicts is that they begin to feel their feelings. Addictions to substances and behaviors provide, from an addict's point of view, protection from feeling the bad stuff, the hard stuff. Part of the process of recovery is to learn how to feel the feelings, whatever they are. You don't get to choose which ones to feel. It takes practice. It is difficult. It is painful. It sometimes feels like that. Learning to feel feelings must be one of the worst classes in the world. But it is precisely where hope lies. I've struggled uh, throughout my life with anxiety. This comes into play around certain circumstances and in relationship to the people I love, especially when those people are struggling. I convinced myself for a long time that my anxiety, my worry, my obsession, my fixation on someone else's struggle was a way of showing love. Not that it even felt like a choice. It felt like all I could do. I called it love, but that's not how it felt. It felt like frustration and anger and self-hatred and guilt and shame. The sorrow I felt was the perverted form called envy, where I looked on the good fortune of others and thought, why do they have it so easy? Why couldn't things have worked out like that for me, for us? The sadness I felt was the perverted form called sloth that robbed me of hope, of belief in my own capacity to be the person I wanted to be. I refused to accept the reality that was before me and despaired of anything changing. And while I say I felt these things, I barely felt anything real at all because the hum of anxiety was so loud within me that I could only faintly hear anything else. And then I found help from various sources, from therapy, from groups, support from loved ones, from reading. I found that anxiety was not the inevitable response to those circumstances, but that I could choose. I could first address the anxiety that had grown within me to the point where it displaced all else. And when the anxiety began to ebb, when it left spaces and opened up places within me, I began to feel sad. I felt sadness for the first time in a long time. True sadness. Not panic, not dread, not worry. And I felt so happy to be sad. Sad. It felt like drinking ice-cold water, the kind that hurts in the back of your throat, the kind where sensitive teeth jump alive with pain, the kind that makes you wonder if you can or should take even one more swallow, but it is what your thirst demands. I'm happy to say that the circumstances surrounding all this have changed much for the better, but in those moments I realized it wasn't about circumstances so much. It was about my response to life and whether I would choose to feel it or to numb it. Just as I had once been addicted to alcohol, I had also become addicted to anxiety, another numbing substance that promised to protect me from pain, even as it was causing great pain to myself and to others. And I needed to learn once again as I'm sure I will need to learn throughout my life, to feel my feelings. I was happy to be sad. And while my sadness was about certain circumstances and relationships, it also touched something larger, deeper about life itself, some sorrow that is a part of existence. Maybe it was the joy that C.S. Lewis describes, a particular kind of unhappiness or grief, a kind we want. Maybe it was a recognition of what the cautionary words of Jonathan Safran for, you cannot protect yourself from sadness without protecting yourself from happiness. Maybe it was a recognition that these words also hold a promise, if I've opened myself to feeling sadness then I have also opened myself to feeling happiness. So yes, happy to be sad. And we are living through times that hold a lot of sadness. Believe me, I understand the tendency to turn away, to want to protect ourselves, and yet, I hear the tragedy in those words uttered by the character in Forrest's novel, I spent my life learning to feel less. Every day, I felt less. I would ask us rather to find ways to feel our feelings Sadness need not lead to the envy or sloth described in The Seven Deadly Sins, refusing to accept the reality in which we live and allowing our sorrow to morph into despondency and despair. Sadness, rather, can provide a powerful connection. We bereaved are not alone, said Helen Keller. We belong to the largest company in all the world, the company of those who have known suffering." When it seems that our sorrow is too great to be borne, let us think of the great family of the heavy-hearted into which our grief has given us entrance, and inevitably we will feel about us their arms, their sympathy, their understanding. Believe me, when you are most unhappy, that there is something for you to do in the world. So long as you can sweeten another's pain, Life is not vain. Happiness and sadness, joy and sorrow, woven fine, inextricable. May you feel your feelings and become present to this moment. This moment, which just may be the best part of your life.